Well, take your Bibles and open to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And I invite you to follow along with me as I read our text for today, which begins in Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Lord, we come to your word today asking for your guidance and for understanding. Renew our minds with truth. We know that you are accomplishing your purposes in the world through the power of your gospel, and we rejoice in our inheritance in you, which is you. You are our inheritance and our great hope. Amen. In Romans 2, the Apostle Paul has been making the point that God's wrath is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, of mankind, of the human race, that it is being revealed from heaven, that God's wrath is in motion, if you will. And he is then making the point that if that's true of the whole human race, that includes the whole human race, the Jewish people do not have any privileged exemption from God's wrath because they have the law of God. The law of God, even though it illuminates life, that it gives knowledge of right and wrong, that it provides insight into how to please God, how to have his favor and his blessing, that just possessing the law is not enough to create this separate class of people who are not accountable to God's wrath, his judgment. It would be easy to conclude, and many had, and which is why Paul is making this point, that the warnings about this judgment don't apply to them. Now, we can feel that way sometimes. We can, we can bank on these same kinds of credentials, can't we? We grew up in Christian homes, maybe. We know the Bible. We know all of the Bible stories. If someone says, what is the gospel, we can spout out an answer. Our parents have attended church. My mom sang in the choir all while I was growing up. All of these things can become credentials that we don't even think about, but we kind of, we bank on in terms of our righteousness, our right standing before God. 
Well, the Jews had the law. They were the people to whom God had given this special body of revelation. And it was easy for them to say, man, that is too bad about the rest of the human race facing the wrath of God. Paul says they too face judgment because they do not do the law. Having it doesn't mean doing it, doesn't mean keeping it. Even if they know it, even if they boast in it, even if they teach it, God is an impartial judge and his criterion is obeying the law. In fact, even circumcision, the sign, the proof of their identity as Abraham's descendants is only of value if they keep the law. Now we have talked about the reality that Paul is not now saying, go out and keep the law. Go and be made right with God by keeping the law. He is saying that within this system of humanity, that mankind stands guilty before God because it cannot be righteous. And it cannot be righteous for one reason because it has no revelation, it has no knowledge of how to please God other than a certain level of knowledge of God that is hardwired into every human being. And those who have received this revelation, they don't keep the law either, but if you were going to try to claim some righteous standing before God, it would not be because you have the law, it would be because you would have to keep it perfectly. Paul never says anyone can do that, but that's the perspective from which he's speaking. And ultimately, in chapter 2, verse 29, he makes the point that someone who truly belongs to God is someone whose circumcision is internal, a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Now, if all of this is true, that those who possess God's special revelation, which sets them apart as his people, still come under God's judgment then how can God be considered righteous when it comes to dealing with his own people? This is the question, the burden of these first eight verses of chapter three. God's righteousness is being called into question because aren't these the implications that God's selection of Israel was never legitimate in the first place? Or that he is unfaithful to his promises, that he really doesn't keep them? That he is kept from, he is held back from keeping his promises in some way. Now, Paul anticipates these objections, and he probably has encountered them before. Paul has preached the gospel much, but he is now writing down the answers to these objections. He now offers a defense of God's righteousness. And this is not just a defense to Jewish people who might call God's righteousness into question. How could God make all these promises, call us apart as his people, set us apart to himself among all of the nations, among all of the peoples, and then judge us like he does the rest of the world? But this is a a defense to the rest of the world as well who observes this relationship 
between Israel and Israel's God play out on the pages and through the events of history. The world as a whole, who might be misled to blaspheme the name of God because of the Jews' accusations of God being unfaithful to his promises. This is important for us because our confidence in the gospel is established on God's righteousness. His righteousness to his own people, Israel. That's how we are tied to the people of Israel. Is his character intact? If not, then the gospel doesn't mean a whole lot for us. And many of the criticisms that the church faces today are accusations against God's righteousness, even if they don't use that term. It is questioning God's righteousness, his justice in the world. If God is a loving God, how could he allow that or do that? You've heard that. So have I. That is a question or a challenge to God's righteousness. So Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, are really Paul's FAQ for his claims about God's wrath, God's impartial judgment, and their implications for God's people. And he does this with four sets of questions and answers. Now, we have FAQs, frequently asked questions, and they'll usually uh, they cover a product or a service or... Um, some sort of an organization or an event, and they are usually questions that that website or that organization anticipates will be asked. FAQs are not usually questions that are asked frequently. Those are the questions that they anticipate. They should be MAQs, most anticipated questions. These are the questions we know you're going to have, and we want to make sure are the main things you get clear about what we're saying or what we're selling. That's what an FAQ is. This is Paul's FAQ. Okay, Paul uses this FAQ then to defend and affirm God's righteousness. And he does it with four sets of question and answers, four affirmations of God's righteousness. First, God's righteousness is affirmed by God's goodness. God's righteousness is affirmed by God's goodness, verses 1 and 2. What advantage, what value, is there any true benefit to being designated God's people? Now, in the Jewish mind, God's calling had made them distinct from other peoples of the world. And they were right. God's calling did do that. It, it did make them distinct. And often that distinction kind of went to their heads. It kind of caused them to be uh, smug. Israel at times was very smug toward the other nations. Instead of taking the posture of, you know what? This is all by God's sovereign grace. We've done nothing. And yes, we're called apart to be distinct. But our calling is for the purpose of serving you, nation X and Y and Z, and drawing you to the worship of the one true God, the nation of Israel often became smug and satisfied and said, wow, we got it made. 
We've got victory, we've got our own land, we've got blessing, the one true God is on our side. We've got the law, we have the illumination, we've got the position and place in the world. And in fact, it's our role to kind of uh, mediate and rule over all of the other peoples. The Lord had to remind them from time to time, as he did in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. It's not about you. It's about me. But the question that comes out of Paul's challenges here is, what good is it to be set apart if it means we undergo the same judgment? Is there really any value? Paul's answer, much in every way. Absolutely. Now, if this sounds like Paul is contradicting himself, keep in mind that what he has said so far is that the privileges of having the law and the sign of circumcision do not exempt anyone from judgment. He has never said that no privileges come with it. He's only said it doesn't give you a pass. It doesn't give you an exemption. It does give you an opportunity, but not an exemption. In Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, he will say that Israel belongs to the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and even the Christ. All of those things belong to the nation of Israel. They are blessed. There are privileges. It's just not an exemption. But the starting point for all of these blessings given to the Jewish nation is the oracles of God. The oracles of God is just another way of talking about all of his commands and his promises, everything that he has said. You could say that the oracles of God are God's speech. Several years ago, I was at the campus of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I was there for a conference, and I, have a, I had a good friend from high school actually dated my younger sister for a year or so um, when I was in high school. But uh, he had moved to Louisville, had gone to seminary there, and he had become the personal assistant of Albert Moeller. And many of you will know Albert Moeller. I've recommended his podcast, The Briefing, many times in his books. Um, Albert Moeller is the president of Southern Seminary, and this friend of mine that I went to high school with was at the time his personal assistant. And so my friend Scott and I, we got together, and at one point he said, hey, you want to see, you want to see, he called him Al. I wouldn't call him Al. He called him Al. He said, you want to see Dr. Moeller's uh, study? And I said, yeah, okay. So he takes me up in the building, and it's the old buildings there, right? These, these seminary, this seminary's been around for a long time, and so we go in this really cool office, and he shows me his office and kind of the greeting room when he has guests. And he said, come over here, and he shows me, takes me back into this room, and he said, these are the archives. And he said, every word written or spoken since recording by the presidents of the Southern Seminary have been archived in this room. 
And with Al Mohler probably being the most prestigious of all of these years, the most um, proficient in terms of how much he's written and how much he's spoken and these kinds of things and the technology that we have to preserve them, there are just walls and walls. It's like being in a library, you know, all the bookshelves, but they're drawers and they're just paper. And I'm sure they have them all digitally too, but it's just paper. Everything he's ever written, we're talking notes, memos, uh, you know, anything he's ever said is recorded, transcribed, and it's kept in this huge archive room. Those are the oracles of the presidents of Southern Seminary. And what Paul is saying is that God has given his oracles. He has entrusted his oracles to the people of Israel. Everything God says, anything that he communicates, anything that is to be recorded for the human race was given to the people of Israel. That is no small thing. The Israelites were their keepers. They were to guard them, treasure them, teach them, bring them to bear on all of life. And they were to point to God's oracles as the source the fountain of their blessing and peace in the world. God's oracles tell the story. Not only, not only do they give laws and regulations, instructions on how to live, but God's oracles tell the story of how God created humanity, how the human race rebelled against him and rejected him, but how God, in response, reestablished a line of access, a line of communication to the human race through his oracles, through his word. The Jewish people have a special place in that plan as the keepers of God's words. That's what Paul's saying. Is there a privilege? Is there an advantage? Just because... The, the Jewish people are as answerable to God's judgment as everybody else. Does that mean they have no privilege? No, they do. That's a privileged place. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 8, the Lord asks the people, And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Nobody else has this privilege. Nobody else hears God speak. Psalm 147, verses 19 through 20 say it even more clearly. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. It's a special role. So this isn't just God's goodness to the Jewish people, though. This is God's goodness to the whole human race because God's promise to Abraham was that he would bless all the nations, all the peoples through Abraham's descendants. We know eventually that means that all of God's blessing to the nations will come through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But those were the promises, and the oracles contained those things. His oracles reveal that promise and how God is working it out through history, fulfilling that promise. So his entrusting of his word was an astounding blessing. God in his righteousness provided the source 
for them to know and to proclaim him. That is an advantage, but it is not an exemption, which is what Paul has been saying all along. So God's goodness is providing his word. This affirms his righteousness, his righteousness. Secondly, God's righteousness is affirmed by God's faithfulness. It's affirmed by God's faithfulness. Verse 3, Paul answers the next logical question. Okay, well, if it is, in this sense, an advantage then, what if God's chosen people, entrusted with his oracles, blew it? What if they just totally blew the whole deal, they wrecked it all with their unfaithfulness? What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And this wasn't hypothetical. Israel had failed. Israel had been unfaithful. The entire Old Testament is evidence that Israel broke the covenant and they faced God's consequences for breaking that covenant. And now, here's what's going on with this question. Paul is answering a wrong conclusion that God's righteousness can't be reconciled with his faithfulness. That those two things somehow oppose one another and one of them must give. One of them must compromise. To judge his own people like everybody else means either God's righteousness or his faithfulness has to give. If God has promised his people blessing and he's promised his people salvation but proceeds then to judge his people, then his people's faithlessness must supersede God's faithfulness and nullify it, cancel it. As far as Paul's audience is concerned, the ones he's addressing here, this is the only way God could make his promises to his people and then judge them along with the rest of humanity. That's the only way. And if all of this is true, then how can God be true? How can his promises be reliable? He must have to compromise his faithfulness to his promises to maintain his righteousness. Well, Paul rejects this with heat. By no means, no way, that's what he's saying. No way, not possible. Let God be true, trustworthy, reliable, though everyone were a liar. This name liar points to the reality, the fact that people, human beings, are chronically false, unreliable, unfaithful. By the word liar here, he doesn't mean just telling a lie or speaking an untruth. He's talking about all of the uh, unfaithfulness that's possible for the human race. Even if every person were completely treacherous and falling apart in unfaithfulness, God remains true. So not only if some are unfaithful, but if every single person was a liar, God remains true. God remains faithful. 
And then he quotes Psalm 51.4 to validate this truth. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevailed when you are judged or judge. You may remember that Psalm 51 is David's prayer of confession and repentance for his uh, adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. It's a, it's a psalm that just riffs our hearts, but it's a psalm that we all identify with when we are sorry and broken over our sin. And in this verse here, David is exalting God's righteousness because he has experienced God's consequences or punishment for his wickedness, for his sin. David had been faithless. Even David is an example of those in question when it says, what if some were unfaithful? Even David. Does David get an exemption? No. And David acknowledges it. Not only does David say, I don't get an exemption, I face the consequences like everyone else. And you would think if anybody would get an exemption, it would be King David. But not only does David say, I don't get an exemption, he says, you are right in doing so. You are justified in your words and you prevail when you judge, which means your judgments carry truth and true justice and rightness in the world. And you are shown, you are proven to be in your judgments, right and true and just. He exalts this. And this, according to David, does not nullify God's faithfulness, it honors it. God is faithful to judge sin. In fact, God cannot be righteous or faithful and ignore violations of his law. And in Psalm 51, verse 4, Paul sees pictured the courtroom of God where God's judgments are shown to be true and accurate and consistent with his character, not at odds with his faithfulness. This ought to be the cry of our hearts when we when we are confronted with sin in our own lives, our own failures. In the verse before this in Psalm 51, uh, David acknowledges that my sin is against you and you alone. That's the first part of, of Psalm 51.4. David says, against you and you only have I sinned. What was David saying? That he hadn't really sinned against Uriah, even though he had him murdered on the battlefield? That he hadn't connived, that he hadn't committed immorality and violated Bathsheba, who was another man's wife? What's David saying when he says, against you and you only have I sinned? David was saying, the human judgments don't really matter in the end. What matters is what you know, what you see, and what you have declared to be right and wrong, and the state of my heart and the consequences I must face. You are the judge. Ultimately, it is you against whom I have sinned. Every sin against every person in your life is a sin against your God. 
And it should be the cry of our hearts when we recognize that to say, you are justified in your words. You prevail when you judge. You are right. And everything that I have faced, your heavy hand upon me, the guilt that I feel, that is all deserved. You are right in doing that. I'll use, again, sorry, kids. I'll use my kids as an illustration. When I say to my kids, you're you're wrong, you're in trouble, here are the consequences, they go, I'm sorry. But then they get mad about the consequences. I say, you're not really sorry. If you were really sorry for what you've done, you would be agreeing with dad about the consequences he's giving you. You would be saying, that's right, I've lost this privilege and I deserve to have lost this privilege. You're right, dad, in taking that away. In a sense, that is what David is saying. And it's what Paul is saying that we should be saying about God's righteousness and his faithfulness. That God's faithfulness is not called into question that his character is intact. So God's faithfulness to us includes his faithfulness to judge sin. It affirms his righteousness. Thirdly, God's righteousness is affirmed by God's justice. It's affirmed by God's justice, verses five and six. Because this now becomes the next question. So if that's true, if God's righteousness is intact, if his faithfulness is intact, that affirms his righteousness. It's not in competition with it. God's righteousness, how can God be just then? How can God be just if he condemns us for things that make him look good? That's really the point of this question. How can God uh, condemn us? How can God be righteous if our unrighteousness shows the righteousness of God? How can God's righteousness be maintained then if he isn't just? This is a twisted, pragmatic way of thinking, isn't it? If I said to my wife, honey, you're you're beautiful. And I do say that. That's not hypothetical, okay? (laughs) But if I say to her, honey, you're beautiful. In fact, you're so beautiful that I want everyone around us to see just how beautiful you are. And so I'm going to stop taking showers. And I'm... I'm going to stop taking showers. I'm going to stop using deodorant. I'm going to stop brushing my teeth. I'm going to stop cutting my fingernails. It's a gruesome scene, isn't it? It's just a gruesome. I just got to shock you every once in a while with something, right? But if I said to her, I'm going to stop doing all these things just so everyone else can see how beautiful you really are, how would she respond? And if I said to her then, and I think you would honor my sacrifice, I think you should honor my sacrifice to show off your beauty by stopping showering and brushing my teeth. You know, I think, just as an aside, I think the Apostle Paul might have used this illustration if he had been married. <laughs> he wasn't married. Okay. But if I say that to her, is that, is, is that sensible? Of course not. That would be absurd. And she would be 
in the right to say, oh, that, that's twisted. Go take a shower, right? The suggestion that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us because our unrighteousness somehow highlights his righteousness is absurd, and that's Paul's point. But that is the reasoning that Paul would face at times. That's the question. Now, hold on. If God's goal in the world is to exalt himself, to make himself great, his holiness, his righteousness, his uniqueness, then doesn't my unrighteousness actually serve to make him more righteous, make him appear to be more righteous? Again, Paul cries, by no means, no way. Because then how could God judge the world? How could God actually judge the world? What grounds would God have to judge anyone? Not only would God have failed in maintaining his own character by going along with that kind of logic, wouldn't this logic work for anybody to argue? My unrighteousness, my sin, my selfishness makes your righteousness even greater. Therefore, it's unjust for you to judge me. Couldn't anybody use that argument? God would have no grounds to judge anybody. There would be no wrath. And if you really pushed the logic out, eventually everyone would be appealing for reward for sinning. Hey, I made you look good, God. I think I ought to be compensated for that. That's where the logic goes. Paul says, no way. God is just to inflict wrath because of our unrighteousness. It is his judgment of sin. Watch. It is his judgment of sin that puts his righteousness on display, not our sin or our unrighteousness in itself. That's not what brings God glory. God does receive glory when he responds to sin with right wrath. So God's righteousness is affirmed by God's justice. Fourthly, God's righteousness is affirmed by God's integrity. God's righteousness is affirmed by God's integrity, verses 7 and 8. The logic is similar in verse 7 to verse 5. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? So here we go. Here's the pushing of the logic. But if my lie... If my lack of faithfulness, if my saying, I will follow you, I will obey you, I will, uh, I will do what's right, I will do the law, but then I don't do it, that's a lie. So if my lie actually serves to abound to his glory, God's truth. It makes God 
truthfulness, his faithfulness, more glorious, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Is not what I'm doing actually accomplishing God's purpose, his goal, and bringing himself glory? So why am I still being condemned? In other words, as though standing in this courtroom before the judge... The, the accused now argue using God's glory as evidence of their innocence, of their not guilty. This should be a not guilty verdict. Why am I still being condemned? Do you see how this logic now actually twists and now accuses God of being the fault, at fault? That it's God's problem. That God can't be righteous when my evil actually is serving to bring him glory and tr- uh, glorify his truthfulness and his faithfulness. To impugn God's integrity is a perversion of God's righteousness. That ultimately what it is. It, what, that's what it is. Verse 8 then Paul takes the next step in that logic. And why not do evil that good may come? Wow. Now Paul's saying that the reason, and this isn't hypothetical because he says here, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, and this is a little parenthesis or which Paul is making the point that in his preaching of the gospel, he is actually con- uh, accused of proclaiming a religion that says, hey, we should actually sin more and more for the purpose of bringing God glory. So Paul is answering this objection in this kind of the the train of reasoning that someone would say, well, if, if... God's truth abounds to his glory because of my unrighteousness, but I'm going to be condemned, then why not just gain more condemnation that good may come out of it, that I just would sin more so that God gets more glory? And Paul's saying, that some people actually slander him for preaching that. That's something that he faced often. And his answer then at the, verse, at the end of verse 8 is what? Their condemnation is just. At this point, Paul doesn't even get hot. He doesn't even say, by no means, no way. That's crazy. Not possible. This kind of thinking is so twisted and so perverse that Paul just said, this is his answer. Their condemnation is just. They deserve everything they get. Anybody who would take God's righteousness and him being glorified, even though we sin because of our failings, and and God does receive glory when in our weakness and our sin we fail and he forgives And he does. He gives grace. He remembers that we are but dust. 
And God is glorified by us. We respond with gratitude and praise. I'm so messed up. But you have been gracious. Uh, and every time I do, you, you forgive. Later on in Romans, he will say, where our sin was great, God's uh, grace abounded more. To take that then and say, well, hmm, if, that, if God's going to forgive me, if I'm going to get forgiveness anyway, that makes him more righteous. I guess I'll take this course. I think I'll do this. That is perversion. And Paul says their condemnation is just. And we all are tempted to do that, aren't we? Especially those of us who know God's grace and know his forgiveness. We presume on it. This is a warning to us to not presume on God's grace because we know he's patient, because we know he forgives, that somehow it's okay. God will understand. It's easier to give forgiveness than permission. We act that way. And Paul is condemning the mindset and the the reasoning that would take it to that end and say, ah, we might as well do evil that good may come of it. The ends justify the means. And if, you know, I have to enjoy sin and get myself into sin to bring about good, the condemnation is just. There's nothing left but condemnation and judgment with that kind of thinking. So Paul here then defends God's righteousness Because everything he has said will bring about in the human heart protest. (laughs) That's really what this shows. And in the next section, Paul's going to conclude and wrap all of this up by showing and demonstrating once and for all, nobody is righteous. Nobody. Not only is nobody exempt, but nobody qualifies. Nobody has. So all this talk about keeping the law and doing the law as God's criterion for standing before him in righteousness becomes a moot point because nobody can do it. Nobody has ever done it. But, but to say all of this to the human race and say, you all have rebelled against God. God's wrath is being revealed against all of you whether you think you have the law and illumination, whether you think you are moral, whether you have followed your hardwired moral compass to the best of your ability and you have stacked everything good on the scales to outweigh all of the bad stuff you've done, it, none of it matters. And the human heart will protest. The human heart will say, that's not fair, That's not right. How can God be righteous? How can he be faithful when I've done all of this, when I have these privileges, when we have his law? We will protest. So Paul is breaking down every protest, every argument, and he's saying in the end at every point, God is righteous, you're not. God is righteous, you're not. God is righteous. You're not. And you better find a way to stand before him in righteousness. And there is only one way.
There is only one way. And God himself in his righteousness has provided how to stand justified before him, how we can do that, and he has revealed that thing that he has provided, and that is the gospel. And that takes us back to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. It is seeing God's answer to our dilemma, believing him when he says, you are in a dilemma because my wrath is being revealed and then trusting in Christ and Christ alone for that salvation, coming to him empty-handed. That is the answer that Paul will take us to. Lord, it is the hardest thing for us in our pride to hear how desperately we need salvation, how desperately we need a righteousness outside of ourselves that we cannot, that we cannot produce. And Lord, your confrontation of not only our actions, but our condition, the state of our hearts. Lord, your confrontation of that brings protest, but our protesting is only proof of our dilemma. It's only proof of the fact that we need a righteousness we can't produce on our own. And that righteousness That justification is only to be found in your provision. And that provision was the sacrifice, the death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so, Lord, as your people today, we are gathered. We have come together because of that provision. Lord, grant to us repentance. Grant to us the brokenness over sin that you gave to David in Psalm 51, that we might cry, you are justified when you speak. You are right when you judge. And to know then the freedom of the forgiveness that you offer. In your name we pray all of these things. Amen.